I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey. What's up? Oh, you know, just coming off of that What's in the News episode talking about coronavirus. Well, guess what? We're going to talk about more terrible shit. <laughs> oh, I know. It's just, it's one thing after another right now. It really is. But I do feel like I am in a deep, dark hole of like terribleness. It was a weird vibe today because, so the Thursdays are my days off. Mm-hmm. So, and I procrastinated quite a bit this week. So I had a lot of work to get done. And I'm sitting at my kitchen table and it's pouring rain outside. And I'm like hearing the coronavirus news on my TV. And then I'm writing about something that's so horrible and sad that I literally, every vibe in that in my apartment today yeah, was just and- sad. I feel like in L.A., like, we literally don't know how to cope whenever it's dark outside. Like, when it's, like, gray yeah. and rainy and cold. Like, today was gray and rainy and cold. And I was just like, and I... everybody is a mess because of it. Everybody's mad. Everybody is, like, over it. Well, the combination of people being insane about preparing for potential quarantine mm-hmm. and the rain with like not being able to drive and all yeah. of that shit like my trip home was dangerous <laughs> yeah for real so today we are going to be talking about uh missing and murdered indigenous women so yes. for this Women's History Month, we kind of decided that we wanted to put the focus on groups of women. So Mm -hmm. last time we did the Radium Girls, and then we were trying to decide what we wanted to do for today's episode, and I really, it was really occurring to me how much I wanted to pull focus to other minority groups. I agree. Because it's wonderful that we get the month of February to kind of focus on black history. Yeah. And we've done Latinx favorites before. um, And there are other groups I would really like to, uh, you know, put some focus on a lot of, like, Asian women's issues and Native women's issues. So this, in particular, was something that was talked about a lot last year for reasons that we will get into as we move through this episode. Mm -hmm. And it was something that was... uh recommended to us quite a bit throughout the last couple of years. Yeah, it's definitely been something that's been on my radar, and you and I are both true crime 
people. We listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. We, we watch a lot of true crime content. So this was something that I had heard a lot about already. And in preparation for this episode, I typically don't listen to the Jensen and Holes podcast, uh-huh. uh, which is a exactly right network podcast from My Favorite Murder. Paul Holes was an investigator who worked on the Golden State Killer case. Uh, They have a podcast, and they did an episode on missing and murdered indigenous women, and it was a good episode. If you want to know more about, like, uh, a couple of individual cases, I would suggest that maybe that's a good place to go. Uh, I believe they did an episode on Crime Junkie as well. Oh, did they? I think they did. I've listened to a lot of those, and I think when I was doing research, I saw that come up somewhere. I feel like this one is difficult to do in that true crime format yeah, because there are so many cases and because... It's a lot of statistics, and it's not a lot of personal... Uh, information, I feel like, because there's so much. There is some, yeah, and and they did touch on some cases and, like, the information surrounding those cases, but I think, as we'll talk about today, I think a lot of this issue has to do with the history of colonialism, the history of fetishism, of Native American women in particular, uh, and just this kind of excusing of violence that has happened to people in this community and also the kind of, like, socioeconomic position that a lot of these people have been put in. It's a very multifaceted issue and one that I feel like we do not talk about enough. No, we don't. I mean, really, their history has created lasting wounds that are not... um, that have not recovered yet, and there's and that you, you know, know it, to it, be it's honest, evolving into into this violence that is so disgusting. Yeah, well, it's and always so, been very, violent. Well, yeah, and I was going to say it's very archaic too. You know, yeah, it's, it's just yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll jump kind of like right into it. Yeah. I looked at a couple of different resources. So I read an article on um, HCN.org, which was Tribal Affairs Study of Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women uh, and how it highlighted police failures. I read a CBC.ca article. And then, of course, I read the Wikipedia page and and two NPR articles. Mm -hmm. So in the Wikipedia page, it opens up by saying, as a group that has been socially, economically, and politically marginalized, indigenous women have been frequent targets of hatred and violence. Underlying factors such as poverty and homelessness contribute to their victimization, as do historical factors such as racism, sexism, and the legacy of colonialism. The trauma caused by abuses under Canada's residential school system also likely play a role. So uh, That school system, man. (laughs) Yeah, and so I think that that is something that we should touch on. So also, I do want to clarify that when we are touching, uh, talking about the missing and murdered indigenous women, that is a term that was coined in Canada. So a lot of this information is First Nations people uh, in Canada. I also have information pertaining to the United States, but we are mostly centralized within um, Canada and the United States, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about this school, because this happened quite a long time ago. There was a state-financed, church-run boarding school system for Aboriginal children who were taken away from their families and forced to go to these uh, schools by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So that seems very, like... I wish I had more information about what that looked like, about how they forcefully brought these people out. Like, it's it's been described as being, like, a genocide because of everything that uncovers, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering how violent all of that was. Yeah, I mean, I'd heard a little bit about this because we also had something similar in the United States. So it was done to try and force younger generations' children to assimilate to colonialism. Yeah. Right? So there are actually pictures of cultural erasure. Yeah. Basically, it's like taking um, someone from their culture, an indigenous person from their culture, taking a picture of them, and then putting them in a three-piece Western suit, cutting all their hair off, combing it over, and saying, hey, this person is reformed, forcing them into a school where they are not allowed to learn their culture or their customs uh, or speak their language, and they're also separated from their families. They were were also incredibly violent. Well, that's what I was going to say. They were physically and sexually abused. So it almost, to me, is like 
well, like, they're gone. Like, it's almost like they're killing off the next generation. Like, it's like they're rounding up the whole, like, well, and future I, generation. I would say that even if they're not physically killing them, because I would say that that wasn't necessarily the goal was right. to physically kill them, although I don't think that they really cared if they died. Did you know that 3,201 students died while attending those schools? Yes. That's a fuck ton of kids. Yeah, and... Um, this school went on from 1888 until the mid-90s. Isn't that, isn't that insane? Like, they still, like, they weren't completely eradicated until the mid-90s. It's yes. But, bonkers but crazy. To what you were saying as far as, like, it feels like killing off the next generation, yeah. I do think that that was figuratively the goal. I think what they actually said was that they were trying to kill the Indian in the child. So even if it wasn't, we want to physically kill, kill this the child, person. we want to kill their culture. We want to stomp it out. Yeah. We want to, you know, completely remove any semblance of their identity. Yeah. Uh, f- from them. You know what I mean? And it, it that inherently is violent. Like, oh, it's, it's incredibly violent. There was a report by the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that said the Canadian government pursued this policy of cultural genocide because it wished to divest itself its legal and financial obligations to aboriginal people and gain control over their lands and resources if every aboriginal person had been absorbed into the body politic there would be no reserves no treaties and no aboriginal rights so that's exactly what you were just saying Mm -hmm. she was just putting it in other words that like by bringing them in they were they were ripping them of what made them who they are. Right. And also, I was listening to the Jensen and Halls podcast, and they had someone on um, who was a member of the Yakima tribe in Seattle, and she was talking about how in their past, like, when she's talking about the ways that these women are being dehumanized, the violence towards Native women, she is very often bringing up... It was actually a little frustrating to listen to because I feel like Jensen and Holes very much wanted her to focus on modern cases. Yeah. And she was trying to kind well, of... Well, she's trying to give them to understand that context. why history is right. important. Yeah. Right. She was trying to give them context as to, like, this is kind of why we are where we are right now. And she was talking about how violence against Native women became very normalized and therefore not taken very seriously. That's why it's important. And she was talking about how there were articles written about how white men could go up into the Pacific Northwest, marry a a Yakima woman, and like basically tips and tricks on how to marry her, get her land... And then leave her, like find, finding out ways to do this, which is mm. incredibly dehumanizing and violent. Yeah. Uh, and so there were all of these ways that white people or, you know, colonizers yeah. were using to try and get land. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to mention really quick that there was a really large court case about these schools in 2008 to reconcile with Canada's native people. And the case was actually led by Justice Murray Sinclair, who was an Ojibwa Native American, and he was the first Aboriginal judge in Manitoba. He says... A just reconciliation requires more than simply talking about the need to heal the deep wounds of history. Words of apology alone are insufficient. Concrete actions on both symbolic and material fronts are required. They had 94 recommendations that were offered by the commission, which included an overhaul of the child welfare system for Aboriginal children, which continues to produce cases of abuse, and change Canada's oath of citizenship to include a promise to, quote, faithfully observe the laws of Canada, including treaties with indigenous people so it, yeah. it did I mean the thing is is that you know this happened like I said from 1883 and the final school was officially closed in the mid 90s that's a really long time for this to be going on and then for this court case to happen in 2008 the mid 1990s yes wow yes wow I believe yikes I, I would assume so because it said it said mid nineties, so I could I could be a hundred years off, could but be I would assume so. Maggot. <laughs> it could have been, and I'd feel horrible. But that's a for three thousand kids to die in one or in like less than ten, 10 years. years. That's 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 pretty insane. Yeah, that's pretty pretty insane. Yeah. So, 
we're trying, what we're trying to do right now is kind of like give you a good basis, a good base for this epidemic that really like started happening later on. And in order for us to discuss that, we do need to discuss the amount of violence against Native American women just in general. Yeah. So according to a 2007 study by the province of Saskatchewan, the only province to have systemically reviewed its missing persons files for cases involving indigenous women, the only one. The only one. First of all. I know. Um, indigenous women were found to have made up 6% of the province's population and 60% of the province's missing women's cases. Yeah. That is crazy. I feel like if you guys didn't hear that, please rewind, rewind. 15 seconds. Listen to that again. Yeah. Because I'm appalled. It doesn't even feel like that should be possible. Right. Well, and it, I mean, there's more. Uh, there was a study in 2011 that says that between 1997 and 2000, the rate of homicide for indigenous females reached seven times higher than other women. And the homicide rate has gone up significantly as well. It was 9% in 1980, and it was up to 24% in 2015. And the number of missing and murdered Indigenous women between 1980 and 2012 is a total of 1,200 missing and murdered Indigenous right. women. Right. Yeah. 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 And, th I mean, the thing is, is that also at the time they had a very conservative government. Their prime minister was Stephen Harper, and um, he made it difficult to have there be any sort of change for this epidemic going on. He didn't really want to get involved. Um, right. So he kind of he claimed that it was like self-contained and that it's it doesn't bother the he was also government. saying that it wasn't a so it wasn't like any kind of social issue it wasn't a systemic problem is what he was saying yeah and as we move through some of these cases and like the way that the response was to it you will see issues where they liked to say it's kind of the same way Bloomberg responded to stop and frisk, right? Yeah. Where he was like, well, we had more stop and frisks there because there was more crime there. Yeah. Uh, and that's not... You found more crime there because you looked for more crime there. Yeah. Right? Where it's like they would say, well these women got murdered, but they got murdered because they were living a high-risk lifestyle, not right. because of any other kind of systemic issues that exactly. were created. And he basically told the chiefs of these reservations to like get your act together and you you deal with it when we're talking about the poverty do you want to talk a bit about the highway of tears or would you like to talk a few more statistics first i just i did want to touch on so of course the murder rate is incredibly high but also and i know we did just touch on this but in 2016, the National Crime Information Center reported nearly 6,000 indigenous women had been reported missing. Yeah. 6,000 uh, in 2016. And a large part of this is not just because there was a conservative government, which there was, but also there was a huge lack of information between law enforcement agencies, between themselves, and then also law enforcement agencies and tribal agencies yeah, didn't work together. There weren't any proper documenting of evidence. A lot of evidence was lost. A lot of these crimes were not reported. When they were reported, they were not always reported to the proper agencies or through the prop proper Well, it was avenues. very confusing. Well, because the jurisdictions, it's like you don't to, know where to go. Yeah, which yeah. agency to report to. So it's also important to notice that these numbers... Uh, in this study or these studies, they do not include survivors of an attack or women who escaped abduction. Oh, so wow. I don't have that written down. That's crazy. Right. So those numbers are even higher yeah. if you count women who survived. Wow. So, you know, it's absolutely insanity. It is insanity. Um, according to a police study, Aboriginal women make up about 4% of Canada's whole population, mm -hmm. but they represent nearly one in four female homicide victims in Canada based on the 2012 numbers. Yeah. So 4%, yet a quarter of homicide victims in all of Canada yeah. are Native. Yeah. That and, it's, is and it's a small population of people. So to make up... Incredibly small. These people are being killed off. Like, it's just, there's not right. a lot it's, of Native people. In one of the NPR... Um, in one of the NPR... Articles? Thank you so much. Yeah, I got you. I read 
they called it that. Like, yeah. they, they were basically like, this is a genocide. Yeah. This is a genocide of Native American women. It is. Yeah. It is. It, it really, really is. And um, should we talk about one of the biggest uh, kind of things that people know about when we talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women? Please. And that is the Highway of Tears. So I said that really chipper. I don't mean it chipper. It's really sad. I don't know why it came out my mouth that way. Like I was like a game show host. I I didn't read it like that. Okay. I did when I heard it. I was like, ooh, that sounds really insensitive. It's horrible. So the Highway of Tears was a 725 kilometer stretch of highway. Obviously someone from Canada wrote this. Yes. And we're like, what? I I did not look up the... the, Distance in miles? Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to convert that. Um... So 725-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 between Prince George and Prince Rupert in British Columbia. And the murders and disappearances began in the 70s. And they named it the Highway of Tears in 1998 during a vigil for four murdered and two missing women. And the number of victims vary because of boundaries. As we were saying, the crimes had to have happened within a mile of this stretch of highway. There were very specific kind of points. You can look at a map where they have like a little line. And um, if you were outside of that, you wouldn't count as being one of the victims of the Highway of Tears. Well, some people wouldn't count you. So like, well, that, the, that's... The, like the federal government wouldn't like they were saying that it was law enforcement was saying it was 18 where the um, the activists of indigenous people were saying that it could be as high as 40. Right. Yes. That's that's correct. So uh, that's what I have as well. So to me, it's semantics. <laughs> like yeah. for you to say, well, uh, I'm sorry, they were a meter outside of this this stretch of highway. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. It's very likely that these women were still picked up on this highway. It sounds like they don't want to have it be their problem. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's very much like because it is the majority indigenous women, they don't want to have to deal with it. So they create these semantics, like you said, that kind of limit Mm -hmm. uh, how the investigation is even going to happen. And because of that, there really was a strong lack of investigation until years and years and years later when Project E. Pana, 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 uh, was created in 2005 by RCMP to investigate uh, a bunch of unsolved murders and disappearances. And so let's just think about that for a second. The invest, like the true investigation, started in 2005 when these murders date back to like 1969. Yeah, that's 36 years of like minimal action being taken, right? Because of racism. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I mean, also yes, racism, a hundred percent. Also, the 70s and 80s were just like, what the fuck? Like, p- yeah, the amount that people were just like, I'm sure she just ran away, or yeah. that but was happening. But it's interesting because the media really was kind of like a big player in uh, whitewashing it Mm -hmm. and uh, not discussing the indigenous women that Mm -hmm. were uh, being killed. Well, and again, because, and this is true in the United States as well, there is a huge problem with substance abuse that happens on reservations. Mm -hmm. A lot of people struggle with substance abuse problems. There are epidemics that happen in large part because of poverty yeah. that we forced on these groups of people. Yeah. Um, and because of that, if any of these women had any substance abuse problems, it was very easy for authorities and for the public to say, well, well I'm they sure had it coming. They either, they either they had it coming or I'm sure they just ran away or right. they went off on a bender and well, they killed themselves. Like any of those Things. And all of those would make sense because the stretch of highway is a very rural region, has lots of poverty, it lacks public transportation, which led to hitchhiking. Yes. Like that's how people got got around. Mm-hmm. There were 23 First Nations communities that border the highway of tears, and many of the victims were last seen hitchhiking. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, if you were to drive along that highway, there are billboards uh, with some of the women's faces on yeah. them. Yeah, and they opened um, 
they opened up like a public bus system and then they also opened up these more like private shuttle systems. Um, they've done these great um, symposiums that educate people on the Highway of Tears where the victims' families come and Aboriginal leaders um, from British Columbia come and they fight to help the health and social services for Aboriginal people and um, want to help improve the community of the First Nations in that area, like I said, by, you know, helping with transit mm-hmm. and helping take the communities out of poverty and also combine the, you know, have the the federal government and the Native American communities find a way to work together in a way that works for both of them. Yeah. You know, yeah. which in a perfect world, it, they would. But right. But you it know. doesn't end there. <laughs> so I also think it's important to touch on the intersectionality that is at play here. Because as we know, and as we've talked about many times on this show, violence against women is indiscriminate in that it happens to all women. (laughs) Yes, all women experience some form of sexual assault or sexual violence or are more likely to experience that. But Native women experience it at such a higher rate that it would be incredibly naive for us to believe that there is no difference. Right. And Uh, it is interesting to think about, um, you know, being a child of the 90s and growing up and kind of learning more about cultural appropriation and uh, what fetishizing of different cultures looks like. Because, I mean, I think about how much I love Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. Like, that, the Disney story is completely different than the real story. Mm-hmm. You know, there's even that kind of, like, white saviorism that kind of goes on in that movie a little bit. Even though she is saying beautiful things that are heartfelt and meaningful, trying to get him to understand. Well, and she understand. does save him in she the does. end. But there is this kind of, like... What I think they it were is, in is, love with each other and it was harmony. It's romanticizing colonialism. Yes, is what it, it is. It is, yeah. yeah. Because they they would like there was the I don't know if I had this written down, but there were basically these fur traders that would like marry these well, and you were talking about the land to mm-hmm. these indigenous yeah women and like have lots of kids with them and then take the kids and leave and like it was just like they treated these women like they were objects. Well, and they were and sexual, exotic beings. You know what I mean? It was oh, this thing. Oh, think about all the sexy Halloween costumes. Of, of course. And that is why we cannot do that. Like, yeah. there's a reason why we cannot have these, like, sexy, you know, uh, Pocahontas Halloween costumes. And it's because of this issue right here. Yeah. That this kind of, like, sexual fetishization and exotication, like, it has... Is that a word? I don't know. But it has led to this kind of very intense um, sexual violence. Yeah, and the thing is, is that along with every other marginalized group, they have been very othered. But there is something about the Native American communities that is so othered because we don't understand it at all. We don't have the education on them as much. Like, I, I'm sure both of us did a little bit because of where we grew up, that we got right. some education on it. But it's not something that's known and i feel like that dehumanizes someone when you know I feel less like about them. unless you are from an area which you and i are both from areas but even one, so i don't know that much i feel like i know more because i have native american people in my family mm-hmm. like i've spent time on reservations my you know aunt is getting married again my mom is going to be her maid of honor and they're having a traditional navajo wedding ceremony that's like, amazing there's so i've been exposed to it however one, I'm absolutely not an expert on it, and I have people in my family. Right. Uh, and I have South Korean people in my family, and I'm not an expert right. in South Korea. And two, in addition to that, I feel like we, the narrative that we have been fed about what Native American culture is, not just in a sexual way has it been fetishized, but in a spiritual way it's been fetishized. Where we see them so much as these kind of, like, mystical beings that we take away their... become trendy now. We take away their humanity when we do that. Mm -hmm. Like, because you're using their culture as something that is... Well, it's very fad-like. It's very trendy. Right. I feel like. A lot of these, like you know, home remedies and stuff, like, it is kind of questionable about what we are, uh, 
what we're appropriating. Right. I mean, and as far as things like home remedies go and things like that, I believe that you take knowledge in, and I think that's important. Use them. (laughs) Use use that knowledge. But I also think if you are looking at Native American people as though they are mythical in some way, I feel like a lot of times Native American people feel like they're not seen as real people. Right. I just see that if you're buying a product that's based on, like, a Native American healing something... Right. And you're giving money to a white company yes. that is just going to profit from it. Yes. To me, that's I, I agree with that. Yes, that's what I do agree with that. Um, be, again, there are so many things I know that, like, uh, Urban Outfitters, this is not what this episode's about, but I think it's important. It is. Um, like, Urban Outfitters and other companies really played on those tropes where they were like, it's a Navajo blanket. Or like, yeah. don't you want this dream catcher that you can hang above your bed? And they were yep. totally made in like Sweden or something. Yep. And so you're not giving the money back into these communities who, again, from a socioeconomic standpoint, are incredibly disenfranchised because of what we've done to them. Agreed. Like, we came in, we fucking decimated their culture. We took their land. We forced them onto a smaller we plot of land. We learned from them. We were like, cool, thanks, bye. Cool, thanks, bye. Have we're some blankets. Away. Yeah. yeah. Really awful shit, you know. And then, on top of that, we've appropriated their culture, taken their culture, profited off of their culture, and yeah. not given them anything back. Uh, and that is disgusting. And that is why cultural appropriation is a problem, in a nutshell. So Thank you, Katie. <laughs> Let us get into talking about the inquiry, shall we? Let's do it. So during the 2015 Canadian federal election, the liberal government candidate, Justin Trudeau, who, by the way, his wife has corona. Oh, no. Yeah, I meant to talk about that on the mini. She just, it was like breaking news right when we started recording. Oh, dear. But Justin Trudeau, who was then running as a candidate for the liberal government, he made a campaign promise to initiate a national inquiry into the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And then once he was elected on December 8th, 2015, they began their inquiry by having meetings with families of the victims and representatives of the provinces and indigenous organizations and groups. Mm -hmm. So the inquiry held public hearings and took evidence from witnesses. And while they were preparing for the final report that they did end up several years later releasing, um, the commission held numerous gatherings and 24 hearings across Canada. They collected statements from 750 people, held institutional visits in eight correctional facilities, led four guided dialogues, and held eight validation meetings. Uh, in 15 community hearings, 468 family members and survivors of violence, and overall, there were 2,380 people who participated. Wow. Yeah, so there were 147 private or on-camera sessions where more than 270 family members and survivors shared their story. So wow. it was massive, yeah. and it went on for a very long time. Initially, the conclusion date for the inquiry was supposed to be December of 2018, but in July of the previous year, 2017, the Assembly of First Nations asked the federal government to reset the ingri- inquiry and reset its mandate or revisit its mandate to extend the timeline because they were yeah. like, it's just not enough time for us to really get to the bottom of what's happening here. Yeah, they started their investigation in, in like, 2015, right? And then they kind of yes. went from there. And this was really uh, one of the first times that they were trying to uncover real data yes. and get, like, the actual numbers because there were so many different numbers being thrown around. And it was incredibly difficult, and they weren't receiving a lot. They were getting a lot of resistance from law enforcement agencies. Yeah. And in July of 2017, Mary, uh, Marilyn Poitras, I think Poitras, 
maybe is her name. I don't know. Maybe she's French. Porta? Uh, she resigned. She was the commissioner, and she resigned. And she said in her resignation letter to Justin Trudeau, she said, It is clear to me that I am unable to perform my duties as a commissioner with the process designed in its current structure. Ooh. I believe this opportunity to engage community on the place and treatment of Indigenous women is extremely important and necessary. It is time for Canada to face this relationship and repair it. But yeah. she was just facing so much um like it was just so difficult yeah like, it was it was hard to actually break through and do something and there was like the violence against women act happened and then it had to be kind of like reauthorized so there was a lot of like and it just doesn't get enough attention i feel like to have a lot of people really pushing for this to be changed yeah so i can see where her frustration would would come from yeah, yeah. And I, I wonder what actually prompted her to really resign. I mean, she clearly felt like she wasn't getting anywhere. But I wonder what... I mean, what maybe she thought that there was elsewhere that... She could be helpful, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of people, uh, I was reading, a lot of people that summer before the end of the inquiry, so in uh, 2017, or I guess two summers before the end of the inquiry, uh, a lot of people resigned. Yeah. So I don't know what was going on, what kind of, like, ad- I remember there being some stuff about Justin Trudeau. That like, making it difficult? Unha- or? That people were... And I don't know about this in particular, but just where people were unhappy with with certain yeah. things. So in October of 2018, the inquiry announced the last of its public hearing dates, um, and... Then after that, they were ready to submit their final report to the Canadian government, and that was in April of 2019. So in that inquiry, which they called the final report of the National Inquiry into the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, they said, Throughout this report, and as witnesses shared, we convey truths about state actions and inactions rooted in colonialism and colonial ideologies built on the presumption of superiority and utilized to maintain power and control over the land and people by oppression and, in many cases, by eliminating them. So there were a lot of findings within this inquiry that pointed to significant issues with the ways in which these cases were handled. So not just the fact that these communities weren't weren't talking to each other. Yeah. But it went farther it went further and deeper than that. So I a lot of the law enforcement agencies wanted to point hand like point fingers, like you were saying, back at the um leaders, the well, tribal leaders. Yeah, and there was a claim there were a lot of claims being made, both in the US and Canada, that it was self contained violence. It was within the community. Right. And so they kept trying to say, well, most of the perpetrators of these uh, missing persons cases or murders are indigenous people themselves. Which is not true. Which is not true. It's not, and that's what the inquiry found. That right. That was, it's, usually it's non-native people attacking right. natives. And there were some cases where it was internal. Yeah. And, you know, that because is going to happen. Because of course it does. It of happens course. in every community. But also, I liked that the inquiry did point out that, like, yes, there are internal cases, but we also can't ignore the systemic issues of poverty uh, yeah. and socioeconomic... You can't turn away from the real problem by saying... Right. But, but people in their community to do it too. It's like, it still doesn't make it right. And, and also, why are people in their community in that? Because they would point to the violence in their community as being an offshoot of addiction problems. Right. Or, well, why? Why right. are like, they Why are they addicted? Why, why are they, are they in, poverty? in poverty? Exactly. Yeah. So one of the most significant findings identified by the Forensic Document Review Project uh, was the fact that there was no reliable estimate on the actual numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and... Two SLGBTQQIA, which is two-spirit, lesbian, yep. gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, and asexual. Yeah, I was doing some reading on two-spirit people, and I really love that label for it. Yes, I yeah. think that's a really beautiful way of um, describing it. Yeah, it's like it's it's basically the same as like our LGBTQ community, it seems like. Yeah, and I've specifically heard, and I could be wrong about this, please correct me, listeners, if I am wrong, but I specifically heard that two-spirit uh, is kind of their word for trans, and it's yeah. something that has existed for a long time within uh, certain tribes in the Native American in Native American communities. That is fascinating. Yeah. I would love to learn more about yeah, that. Yeah, so they call them two-spirits. Two-spirits. Right. Beautiful. So... 
they found that um, a lot of these reports were narrow and incomplete. Yeah. Uh, that very often they would, again, make a decision about what happened and then kind of let it go. She yeah, ran away. It would go cold and then evidence would get lost because they weren't keeping the cases it open. It would go cold very quickly. Yeah. Often cited, there was a statistic that indigenous men are responsible for 70% of murders uh, of indigenous women. Wrong. And they found during this inquiry that that was not factually based. Uh, there was virtually no information with respect to either the numbers or causes of the missing and murdered indigenous women or um, people within the LGBTQ community there. And they would talk about how these indigenous communities are in very remote areas. And so they are not only under prioritized where they're like, we don't really want to go out there and yeah. deal with this, but they're also under resourced. Yeah. And again, there's a lack of trust. I talk about this a lot with black communities because it's something that I have first hand knowledge of, but there is a massive lack of trust between communities who have been oppressed by colonialism <laughs> Uh, and people that they see as their oppressor. They don't trust so the man. I they don't blame them. do not trust police. Yeah. So they don't want to go to police. They want to keep things very much internalized uh, within their communities. Yeah. And for a long time, there wasn't a way for tribal leaders to deal with sexual assaults. There just yeah. weren't laws. Well, there And there were, um, again, I don't have this written down, but there were certain like limitations of how... Exactly. Yes. How long a perpetrator could be punished, and like it would be something. It was something like a five dollar or a five dollar five thousand dollar fine, and like a year in prison. I believe I read. So they had like really lax laws, and there wasn't really anything to do with domestic violence in any of their guidelines when it yes, came to their law. There were a lot of loopholes yeah. that had to do with it happening on the reservation because it wasn't federal land. Yeah, and they also weren't able to create laws in the way that we have laws, like government yeah. laws. So if things happened on the reservation, it kind of was like, well, we we can't punish it the same way that we normally would. There was just like no no way to do that. Yeah. I wish I had written down specifically what that was. I thought I had, but I don't see it here. So I like that they say specifically prejudice stereotypes and inaccurate beliefs and attitudes about indigenous women girls and 2SLGBTQQIA persons negatively influence police investigations and therefore death and disappearances are investigated and treated differently than other cases. Yes. Because we talk about this a lot when we talk about sex workers or other people who are murdered. They are considered less dead. Yeah. So if you have these misconceptions about a community already, you're not going to work as hard to solve it. And it was really heartbreaking when I was reading these NPR articles where one woman whose family member, I think it was like her sister, had been murdered uh, where or was missing. I think she was missing. And they incorrectly on her report put her down as Caucasian. Oh. And she said, don't correct them. Yeah. Because it might make it might make it they might investigate it more important yeah for them to try and find her wow so there was a closing ceremony at the end of this entire inquiry and it was held in quebec on june uh in june of 2019 and it detailed the inquest's findings to the public so it was really beautiful a lot of indigenous people showed up a lot of the, the families, families and the leaders gathered and, together yeah so during this closing ceremony, they said the significant, persistent and deliberate pattern of systemic racial and gendered human and indigenous rights violations and abuses perpetuated historically and maintained today by the Canadian state designed to displace indigenous peoples from their lands, social structures and governance and to eradicate their existence as nations, communities, families and individuals is the cause of the disappearances, murders and violence experienced by indigenous women, girls, 2SLGBTQQIA people and this is genocide. And that was the chief commissioner, Marion Buller. She said that at the ceremony. And then wow. she said, the steps to end the violence, the report states, must be no less monumental than the combination of systems and actions that has worked to maintain colonial violence for generations. So yes. she was like, 
as equally as you guys fought for this shit, we have to fight against it in order yeah. to stop this from happening. Yeah. I love, like, it makes me want to cry. I can only imagine what these communities must have felt like. To Probably feel like, very forgotten for a very long time. And, and now they're recognized. being seen. Yeah. yeah. And, and they're saying, like, this violence against you, it's happening because of historical, systemic issues that we as a nation have allowed to happen. Yeah. I love Canada, man. We will, Canada. I don't think we'll ever do that here. Yep. No, probably not. Well, should we talk about here? Yeah, let's talk about here. Let's talk about the United States. So from 2010 to 2018, the U.S. observed 71 urban communities to see how many incidents were reported. So they looked at 71 cities, and out of that, they had 506 reported cases, 128 were reported missing, 280 were murdered, and 98 were unknown. So they wanted to kind of start to try to build data because from 1992 to 1996, many indigenous victims were not reporting their crimes. And this does not mean that crime wasn't happening, but there was a huge dip in them reporting their crimes. Right. And actually what I read is between those years, 92 to 96, they actually experienced similar rates in sexual violence here in the United States as they did in Canada or more. Yeah. Like, they actually estimate that the numbers might be higher, but unfortunately, the amount of reporting was so much lower. Yeah, exactly. Well, and then, obviously, the cause for the violence is very similar to that as in Canada. Um, and a lot of it, again, was the legal inability for the tribes to prosecute their own on their reservation. Um, the Violence Against Women Act and its Reauthorization Act led to legally allowing tribes jurisdiction of their own land and people, though the Senate has tried to have this progress stalled during Trump's administration. Not surprising. Yeah, so the House has been pa- have, has been trying to pass stuff, and the Senate's been kind of, like, sitting on it. How could you be part... Okay. Yeah. Not, not trying to turn this into, like, that, but it's like, how could you be part of a party? Like, for why? Like, yeah. I just don't understand why you would be part of a party that just is, like, human rights? Nah. Nah, we don't We would them. just rather people suffer. Like, I just don't get it. I mean, they care about rich white people. I don't. <laughs> in 2018 and 2019, U.S. states, including Washington, Minnesota, and Arizona, began to take steps in passing legislation to increase awareness of the issue and build more databases that show accurate statistics regarding the missing and murdered women. Currently, the federal law surrounding violent crimes with non-native perpetrators on native land is still difficult. And according to the Supreme Court ruling in Ophelia v. So- Suquamish Indian tribe, which was in 1978, jurisdiction powers over non-American Indians and Alaska natives and therefore cannot prosecute or punish them for their crimes on reservations. And the Indian Civil Rights Act, which was in 1968, limits the maximum punishment for any crime to be $5,000 fine and up to a year in prison, which is what I said earlier. So there were lots of like stipulations of how to even go about prosecuting these crimes. Um, Yes, yeah, and I had written that up here as well, that, yeah, there's a limitation on the legal ability for tribes to prosecute their own on a reservation, and that was just, like, a historical thing that was going on. And it's interesting because, like, violent felony crimes committed on reservations can be prosecuted by the FBI, because they have some sort of understanding, I guess. But I was also reading that the FBI uh, has historically kind of messed with the... Uh, reports on their findings as well with some of these, but they can't have the FBI step in if it's like a felony charge. So in states other than Alaska, California, Oregon, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Nebraska, where public law 280 applies, state and county authorities do not have jurisdiction over reservations. So from what I understand, public law 280 is something to do with the reservations and the jurisdictions working together. Hmm. So, but a split in authority can make law enforcement compete over jurisdiction powers, such as it, it it can lead to cases not being effectively solved, and the FBI does not always keep the data on missing and indigenous women. So that's what I meant. They don't always keep the data for very long. So they were trying to make it so that that data was being held on to. That is so... Okay. Why weren't they keeping it for very long? I don't know. Cool. I don't know. I mean, for the same reason that all of this other stuff is happening would be my um, 
assumption. There has been some really great um, activism in the United States toward this as well, such as the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. That is May 5th, which was established in 2018. There was a Washington State House Bill 2951, which was on May 7th, 2018. Uh, It was a bill that orders an inquiry into how to increase rates of reporting for missing Native women and girls in the state of Washington, which sounds like they were really kind of going off of what was going on in Canada. Yes. Um, Well, in that episode of Jensen and Holes, they are talking to a woman from the Yakima tribe in like near Seattle. Yeah. Because Seattle and Albuquerque actually have some of the highest numbers of missing and murdered indigenous women in the United States. And they were focusing on a couple of cases that were in Seattle. Yeah. So uh, I think that they did model themselves kind of sort of after what was going on in Canada. I I would hope so. Yeah, and then those people or those women, because it's mostly women who have started this movement to to have something happen, they have really been pushing in Washington specifically, the Seattle area, to make changes legally. Um, Arizona passed a House bill as well in 2019 where... Uh, the bill would conduct a study to determine how Arizona can reduce and end violence against their indigenous women. So that's great. And there's also something called Savannah's Act. And that was introduced to Congress initially in 2017 and then again in 2019 to increase cooperation and coordination between federal, state, tribal, and local law enforcement and implement training for tribal agencies from the attorney general and improve tribal access to databases along with increasing data collection to accurately show statistics. So actually allowing them to be able to view their data, help put input into what's going on and help make everything as accurate as Mm -hmm. possible. And there are lots of really amazing uh, activist groups in the U.S. and Canada, such as the Native Women's Association of Canada, um, which is one of the many groups that started to help create their own uh, database. They've been active for decades There is the Women's Memorial March, which started on Valentine's Day in 1991 in Vancouver, which is an area which was known to have uh, a lot of crime against indigenous women. I read about that. That was actually really interesting because it started as just, they did it on Valentine's Day, and it started as just a gathering of people to honor and mourn the women who died. And then it slowly, um, or were missing, and then it slowly grew and grew into this bigger thing, and now it is a march that they do. Yeah, Yeah, and they they do it every single year since 1991, and their goal is to gain enough support for a national inquiry and program of response. At the 2016 march, they stopped at all of the sites where women were last seen or where they were found. So they would go to all these different sites and stop and take a moment it's, and then move on to the it's next It's beautiful, spot. but it's so hard. Can you imagine doing that? It would be... Crushing. It would be crushing. Like, I don't know how I would end my day. Like, how would I go back to normal life? Like, it would just be a very hard thing to snap yeah. out of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also Sisters in Spirit. Uh In 2002, the National Coalition for Our Stolen Sisters was formed by other activist groups, and their focus was to raise awareness about the MMIW crisis and violence against two-spirit persons, which we already discussed. Mm -hmm. Um, They collected, the Sisters and Spirit collected details of almost 600 cases of uh, missing and murdered women in Canada, which was the first in its detail and scope. Uh, the government actually stopped their funding in 2010, so they formed Families of Sisters in Spirit, which was not, uh, it was, there was no funding. It was all volunteers. Yeah. It wasn't funded like by the government. Like a nonprofit, maybe. Or- yeah, so they could do it all themselves and didn't have to rely on the funding of the government. And it was led by Indigenous women. And the last one that I read about was Drag the Red, where in 2015, the body of 15-year-old Tina Fontaine was found in the Red River of Manitoba. Since then, volunteers have began searching waterways, which got everyone together to kind of search, it's so sad, all the waterways to try to find any missing remains in the river that was common to have girls. Can I just say how, like, I'm really emotional? (laughs) Uh, Because, like, my, yeah, I'm just coming off my period, so I'm emotional, but... 
I just want to say, like, how amazing women are. Like, I just think that women are so incredible because it's, like, the worst shit can happen to us. Yeah. And so often, and especially with, like, marginalized groups in particular, we talk about this with black women a lot, and, you know, it's very clear here as well. Um, But all women, really, they are so good at seeing a problem and saying, how can I help fix this problem? What it's, can I do to, to alleviate this pain? If you we're going to talk about, you know, psychology for a minute, that's something that I find in my daily life that I do, where if somebody is upset, I immediately think that it is my job to fix the circumstance. And, you know, I feel like that's a very womanly thing, and that might be social conditioning. It is, because yeah. we have been conditioned to be these caretakers and I'm the type of person where if somebody's like oh I have a headache or oh I had the worst right. day like I will be uncomfortable I will make myself uncomfortable to make you feel better right and immediately if someone says I have a headache I'm like oh can I get you an ibuprofen do you I'll want say, water oh I go further I'm like you go lay down I'll go bring you a blanket and water and Tylenol and I'm gonna give you the pills right. and I'm gonna- I get in this weird and like mode I just like seeing it play out in this way and yeah you know, it's, it's taking that level of like caretaking to the nth degree it's problem you know? solving yeah it right is. it's saying that like which we... i honestly think women are better at doing but yeah. maybe that's maybe that's uh misandrist of me to say i don't maybe know we should be leaders i'm yeah. just throwing it out there um, maybe we should be president just saying uh but really is i, I like seeing women say i don't want this to happen to anybody else there has to be a way to fix this problem. And that's something that brings last week's story and this week's story together in a really beautiful way. Yes. It's women where they're not even, it's not even for themselves, it's for the next generation and it's for the, the women that came before them and this historical thing where we have two different groups of people who are fighting for their voices to be heard I, and I th- for and their message to be recognized. Sadly, I think it comes from this place of like, if no, if I don't do it, no one else will. No one's going to... I can't rely... And this is sad, and I don't mean it like this, but it's like, I can't rely on men to protect me or, yeah. like, to do this for me. Well, yeah, like, I we mean... we have to protect each other. I'll, I'm a firm believer if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. And for each other. Like, women yeah. have to get in there and make noise yeah. and do these things for each other because if we don't, no one will. Yeah. <laughs> like, we... I, f- I truly feel yeah, that way. Yeah, men are not going to stand up for us. We have to... They don't... They have not been in our shoes. We can't expect that to happen. Like, I think we've known through history that if there's something to be done that that we are unsatisfied with in our own lives, we have to do that ourselves. A man is not it, going to do sad. it It's sad. It's sad that that's the case, but it but also is. we're But, like, we've been treated differently forever, men and women. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that, no, a man wouldn't know how to you know, regulate a woman's body or anything. You know what I mean? Like, there's all these things that we've told government uh, officials that it's okay for them to do. Right. You know? It's just sad that, like, it's not enough to be like, hey, we're being murdered. Can you do something about this? They're it's like, like, you have to step eh, you're in. Not, you're not white. Right. You're yeah, good. yeah. Anyway, I really enjoyed doing this episode. I really enjoyed doing last week's episode as well. Uh, I like that we kind of, like, mixed it up this year and yep. did, did something a little different. So, I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week, so we're going to have to no think clue. about that. <laughs> no clue at all. Yep. But if you guys have suggestions... Oh, my God, please. Or if you enjoyed these episodes, I would really love to hear your feedback about it. If you have more to contribute, I would definitely like to hear more about that. I really did try and do my best with my notes this week. It was a bit of a crazy week. Just the coronavirus panic uh, at work. We were kind of in a tizzy trying to get everybody prepared to work from home and all of that stuff. So it was a little bit difficult for me to balance my podcast life with my regular life this week. So if I, I just did, felt a very strong lack of motivation because of everything this week. It was hard. It, really, <laughs> it was hard it for was me. It was hard. harder this week than than most to get myself. I feel to the not same way. Want to because for me as well, like 
I'm a very fidgety person. Like if I'm watching TV, I'm usually drawing or I'm doing yes, needlepoint or I'm doing something mm-hmm. with my hands. And when I'm researching, I have to really focus and yes, I have to just, agree. I can't do something else. And for some reason this week, it was harder for me to get myself to sit it down and do it. It was very hard. I was like, I just want to watch Robert Welsh makeup videos on YouTube all day. I I've been don't... watching uh, Good Girls. Oh, I love Girl Girls. Yeah, I was just like, I don't I don't want to research, but I'm so glad that I did. Yeah. Uh, I'm really happy that we did this episode. Me too. But with all that said, if we missed anything... Which I'm sure we missed so much. I'm sure we missed so much, but if there is something that specifically we missed that you wish we had talked about, please write in and let us know, and you can do that at our email address at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can also direct message us on Instagram. People do that all the time. Uh, our Instagram is at angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can find us on Twitter. I get on there about once a week or so yeah. uh, at Yamf Podcast, Y-A-N-F Madigan Podcast. <laughs> you did this a-, a couple weeks ago. I know. It's fine. Okay, are you ready? I'm ready. <clears throat> Why, Maddie? You're supposed to say, you have to say the, my eyes were closed. You have to say the, and we have a Twitter. And we have a Twitter account at Yamf Podcast, Y A N F Podcast. Thank you so much. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. We have a business and a group page. You can leave us a review on our business page. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love getting your reviews. You we can really like it. also listen on Radio Public if you so desire. It is free for you and it helps us out a little bit. With all of that being said, yeah, do it, girl. Do it. <laughs> No, do it. I'm here for it. No, no, no. I can't. It's against tradition. I'm afraid something bad will happen. I was kind of down for it. Okay. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.